the interesting thing is the way that we typically measure risk, which is how much do those investments go up and down? How substantial are those ups and downs? You're actually taking less risk with the globally diversified portfolio. So smart diversification means that we don't really want to over-focus on any one sector or country. We want to diversify our risk as broadly as possible because, again, we know markets work. So we want to let them work for us without taking any undue risk. Welcome to Your Retirement Planning Simplified with your host, Joseph Curry, a CFP professional who is going to help you learn how to simplify your retirement planning. This podcast is all about helping you answer those burning questions you've had about your retirement possibilities and making a plan to get there. Through retirement planning education, resources, and expert interviews, Joe will help you get clear on your retirement vision, how to simplify it, and what you'll need specifically to achieve or maintain your financial freedom. Ready to live out your retirement dreams and create future opportunities for the ones you love? Then let's get started. Hello, and welcome to episode number 33 of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. I am your co-host, Joe Curry, and with me, my co-host, Lindsay Wilson. How are you today, Lindsay? Hi, how is everybody? Well, I'm doing great, thanks. How are you doing? Good, I'm very good, thank you. That's good. Anything new and exciting since last time we jumped on here, Lindsay? Well, yes, I am treading the boards at a local theater. One of my pastimes is getting involved in community theater, so I've been busy with that. Yes, I actually got to see Lindsay play in The Crucibles uh, live theater. It was really great. And little small town Peterborough. Anyway, they had a play that was set, should be in Toronto. It was really good. I I was super (laughs) impressed. Well, thank you. I think we're all pretty pleased with it. How about you? How are things with you, Joe? Well, things are great other than I'm just getting over this cold, but feeling a lot better today. And before that, I don't know when we recorded last, but I think since then I've been in Vancouver and Whistler, did some snowboarding with my wife, Ashley. Since I've been back, we've been snowboarding with the boys. So having some winter fun, I guess you could say. Excellent. So for today, our topic is pursuing a better investment experience. I'm going to base this topic on... I guess you could say a pamphlet or maybe we'll call it a white paper that we've adopted from Dimensional Fund Advisors with their permission, of course. And the reason I want to talk about this today, Lindsay, is when I'm online, whether it's LinkedIn or in the news, reading, researching, I'm always seeing all these different trends and investments and different strategies and people talking about, for example, you know, why dividend investing is the best thing for retirement or whatever the scenario is. There's always something. So I just thought maybe we could take it back to the basics today and talk about what is really important about creating a good investment experience, helping people achieve their goals, try to take the stress out of investing as well, I guess you could say. That's true. And imagining being the client in a situation, what are some insights, guidance that can help me to have a better investment experience? You know, someone who is sort of a layman, as it were, approaching it for the first time. Well, today, by the time we get through all this, hopefully you're an expert, no longer a layman. (laughs) That's right. Well, so I think a good place to start might be embracing market timing. How can I embrace or at least understand market pricing? What people generally fail to understand is that the market is more like a a voting machine kind of than anything else. It's getting all of the available information to all of the investors who invest in the market. So again, just to take that back a little bit, I know sometimes people ask me, well, what is the market? And the market is where stocks are bought and sold. And it's made up of all the publicly traded companies in the world. So we're just talking 
the general global stock market. So there's a whole bunch of individual markets like the Toronto Stock Exchange, for example, but we're just talking generally global stock market. So anyway, every time we see the price move in the stock market, it's because new information has become available, right? So sometimes it's specifically affecting the company. Other times it's more general information, like we've seen a lot of movement stock markets lately when different announcements are made about interest rates, for example. But that's actually a really good example of how it's really hard to get ahead of the market and make good decisions based on information we have, thinking that we have it before the market does. Because what we've seen is days where the stock market is up or down 3% in a day or within an hour or less after an interest rate announcement is made, or the Fed kind of gives some guidance as to what they're expecting to happen in the future. So in other words, the market, we see it adjusting in real time. So we're not getting that information and having time to react and get ahead of it. So at the end of the day, embrace market pricing just means that whatever prices we see today, assume that the market's taken into account all the information that's out there. And we don't have any information that's going to help us make a better decision about what that right price should be, unless we're insider trading, which we shouldn't be doing insider trading, by the way. So at the end of the day, yeah, we just want to embrace whatever prices we see in the market as the best guess at what's the correct price for that company at any given time. I'm curious about what the data tells us about outguessing the market. If we look at Pursuing a Better Investment Experience, the white paper that we're working our way through today and that we'll provide in the show notes, what does the data tell us about outguessing the market? Yeah, so this is really taking that embrace market pricing to the next step. If we are not embracing the market pricing, and we're trying to think about what a stock should be priced at, well, now we're trying to outguess the market. Just to kind of give a little bit of data, now I'm going back from 2001 to 2020. This is US-based equity or stock mutual funds. But if we look at all of those mutual funds that were around at the beginning of that period, so 2001, and then we go to 2020, well, first of all, only 41% of those mutual funds are even left generally outperforming mutual funds don't disappear. They stay in business. So that tells you kind of what's happened with all those non-survivors. But if we just look at all of them, only 19% were actually winners. So in other words, only 19% of the funds over that 20-year period actually outperformed their index. So what does that mean? Well, if it's large cap US mutual fund, it would be compared to the S&P 500 index, right? So that's saying that the S&P 500 index more than likely outperformed the mutual fund. And that's not just equity mutual funds, though. For fixed income, over that same time period, only 11% were winners. So that's, I guess, the evidence. We have all these professional portfolio managers. These companies have millions of dollars. They have analysts across the globe, very fancy, expensive computer systems, and all the data they can get their hands on, and they still can't outperform the market. That's just the data telling us most people trying to outguess the market at the end of the day are not very successful in doing so. Right. So if Puff's performance offers a little insight into a fund's future returns, how is it that we choose a fund? How do we go about understanding that? Well, that's a great question. I spent a lot of years trying to figure out how to pick the best mutual fund manager to try to get that outperformance. And every time I thought I had figured it out, I realized that I didn't. And one of the biggest things that people generally do is they'll look at past performance. So what managers have a great track record? We know not all fund managers are winners, but we're only picking all-star fund managers. But at the end of the day, just kind of continuing on with the data, 
we don't want to try to chase past performance. Kind of the same type of study shows us uh, if we're looking at top-ranked funds that stay as a top ranking. So the example that we have here is looking at top quartile funds. So that is, if we look at all funds, the ones that were in the top 25% by performance. So not necessarily outperforming the market, but just compared to their peers, they're in the top 25%. And then we look over the next five-year period and we see how many of those top quartile mutual funds or, or managers stayed as a top quartile fund. And this is going in five-year periods from 2010 to 2020. So kind of just running multiple five-year periods. And the answer is only about one-fifth of equity fund managers stay in the top 10 and just under one-third for fixed income funds. So what that's telling us is that just because someone has done well in the past, there's really no indication that they're going to be doing well in the future. It's no better than what we'd expect by chance if we were flipping coins. Continuing on that thought, how do we get markets to work for us? How do we become successful investors? We can let the markets work for us. And so I never fully answered your question, Lindsay, about how do yeah. we choose the best funds, right? And the answer is, we shouldn't try to choose the best fund or the best manager who's going to try to outperform the market for us. We don't need to do that. And that's because at the end of the day, markets work. So the stock market over time, it's always gone up. So in the short term, we know it's very volatile. It's really more or less, it seems like it's just reacting to news and new information every minute. And that's why it's so hard to predict. And that's why we think of it as being really risky in the short term. But if we look at any longer periods of time, it's remarkably consistent, the types of returns that we get from the stock market. If we just get returns that are the same as the markets we're invested in, then we're going to actually be doing really well. In fact, we're going to be doing better than, based on those stats I just gave you, you know, in the neighborhood of 80% of fund managers. Now, if anyone wanted to dive a little bit deeper into some of the data I was just giving you, you can go to spiva.com, S-P-I-V-A.com. And on there, you can go to basically any country and you can look at how mutual fund managers are doing relative to the benchmarks in any of the countries, right? So Canada, US, anywhere abroad. And if we start going out further, the last Spiva report I looked at, we we're looking at like a 10-year period. I think it was on average about depending on what fund category we're looking at, like 90% of fund managers are underperforming the market. So again, this is all comes back to, we just want to get market returns. And over time, we're going to be happy. Stock market returns consistently outperform bonds, treasury bills, GICs, inflation. Again, assuming that we're giving it enough time. That's the key is we need to be patient and disciplined. So there's multiple ways that you can do it as far as getting those market returns. But basically, some kind of index fund is a good starting point anyway. Right. So using that information, what drives returns to pursue higher expected returns of my portfolio? Yeah. So I guess the question you're asking, and tell me if I'm asking this right, is we know that markets work, but is there something we can do to try to get some additional return beyond the market? Does that sound right? Yeah. Okay. So again, if we just get market returns, that's good. Like We could probably just settle for that. That said, the academic research into what drives returns does show us a few things where there's, I guess, some areas of higher expected returns. Now, there's something called factors, which are, I guess, suggesting maybe they're patterns or different things that show us we might be able to get higher expected returns if we try to kind of dive into these factors. And there's like, I think there's multiple, like hundreds of them, but a lot of them don't make sense. A lot of them are not robust. We don't see them in different markets. And a lot of them are just explained by, 
kind of the few that I'll talk about right now. And so those drivers of returns beyond the market itself are company size. So small cap versus large cap, for example. We know that on average, given enough time, small companies tend to do better than larger companies. We also know that we can look at relative price. A cheaper company or cheaper stock, so to speak, typically we would look at kind of the price of the company relative to its book value, its value on paper. A cheaper stock would be referred to as a value stock. A more expensive stock would be referred to as a growth stock. Again, over time, value stocks tend to outperform growth stocks. Now, we've just went through one of the worst decades ever for value stocks up until the last probably year and a half or so. And now all of a sudden, all those growth stocks that we're doing really well have kind of tanked over the last year and value is starting to look really good again. The point I'm making here is that with all of these different factors or these different drivers of returns I'm talking about is they don't necessarily show up every year. They don't necessarily show up every five years or every 10 years, but more often than not, they do show up. And then the final one is uh, profitability. So companies that are more profitable uh, tend to do better than companies that are less profitable. What can we do to try to get returns beyond what the market is doing is we can try to overweight those three drivers of returns, which at the end of the day, pretty much explain all the other factors that might be out there. So if we're looking at all of that, how can we practice smart diversification? You know, why be globally diverse with my portfolio? Yeah. So I guess this kind of goes back to letting markets work for us, but we're in Canada. So we don't necessarily want to just buy we'll call it an ETF that tracks the Toronto Stock Exchange because Canada only makes up about 3% of the global capitalization on stocks, or in other words, the percentage of the total stock market by value. If you're in the US, the US is roughly 50%, but still there's a whole world of opportunity beyond the US as well. What you would be better off doing is spreading your risk out among even more companies than just your home country, for example, and you're not necessarily giving up any higher expected returns. So specifically, if you're investing almost all in Canada, if we go from 1991 to 2020, your annualized return would have been 8.44% if you're just getting what the Toronto Stock Exchange got. But if you had a globally diversified portfolio, same idea, just an index tracking global stocks, you would have actually had a 9.67% rate of return. But the interesting thing is the way that we typically measure risk, which is standard deviation, but to a more layman's terms is, how much do those investments go up and down? How substantial are those ups and downs? You're actually taking less risk with the globally diversified portfolio. So smart diversification means that we don't really want to over-focus on any one sector or country. We want to diversify our risk as broadly as possible because again, we know markets work. So we want to let them work for us without taking any undue risk. And I'm just curious, just to return to an earlier topic that we could tie in, how does market timing relate to a globally diverse portfolio? I mean, I guess at the end of the day, we never know which market segment is going to outperform from year to year. So from a market timing standpoint, I guess there's a couple of different ways we can look at that. One might just be trying to get in and out of stocks. Like, I think that there's going to be a recession, so I want to get out of stocks. I think that things look good, so I want to get into stocks. That's one way of market timing. We know... And I think most people know, even though intuitively it's hard to get away from, but I think most people know that that's not a winning formula for investing. But a lot of people will also try to do, I guess, what we would call be more tactical in their decisions around building a portfolio and timing. So 
when should they be going more global? When should they be going more into the US or more into Canada or, or whatever that scenario is? When should they buy more value or more growth? So all these different decisions that could be made, which at the end of the day, just come back to market timing. And again, there's a lot of good data to show that it's very hard to know ahead of time which markets or which sectors, which types of stocks are going to do better. And again, it all comes back to, I guess, embracing market pricing we talked about at, at the start, right? So if we are just globally diversified, we're in all the different sectors, different countries, we know when the returns show up, we're going to be there. We don't have to try to guess when to get in and when to get out. I know if we've taken all of this into account and there are headlines, emotions that go along with investing, like people promising that you can retire early, retire rich, sell stocks now, recession. How do we manage our emotions and keep calm with all of the messaging that we encounter about investing? Yeah, well, I mean, emotions play a big part in investor returns. So there's a Dalbar, D-A-L-B-A-R, done a lot of research into this. Carl Richards calls it the behavior gap. But at the end of the day, what we tend to see is that investor, so the people actually investing their money in investments, tend to underperform the investments that they're invested in. And that just comes back to, to behavior. Now, I've talked to a lot of people about their investments, and it's amazing how few people think that they're actually subject to this bias. At the end of the day, we're all subject to making decisions based on our, our emotions. If we knew we were doing it, then we wouldn't do it. Well, I just wrote about this in a client newsletter. What we've seen the last few years is a lot of growth, tech stocks, cryptocurrencies have been doing really well. So people hear about that. They feel like, you know what? It looks like I can't lose. I want to put my money into this. I can do this. Look, everything's going up. It's great. And they tell their friends and yeah, no, I don't want to miss it. So they're throwing their money in and everyone feels like they're winning. But most of these people are getting in once we've actually seen a lot of the returns already happening, right? That's why people are wanting to do it because they have a kind of fear of missing out. So they get in when prices are already high. And then things kind of come tumbling down. So over the last year, 2022 is a really tough year, specifically for those types of companies I just mentioned, growth, tech stocks, uh, cryptocurrencies. And so then what happens is when everything's crashing, a lot of times people are then getting out. So people are buying high and selling low. And that's for no reason other than they're using their emotions to make their decisions about investing. So we need to be able to manage our emotions anytime we're investing. And really doing that is all about having a plan. For a lot of people, it's about working with an advisor or coach, someone who can help work them through those emotions and have those conversations, be that second opinion or kind of shoulder to lean on, I guess you could say. So ultimately, looking at all of this, what is in my control as an investor? You definitely don't want to get lost in all the headlines and different things you're hearing from your brother-in-law or your neighbor, whoever it might be. But you can control your investment plan. And for the record, everything I'm saying right now, or I've said on this whole podcast is not investment advice, right? We're talking very generally here. But based on your situation, you want to have an investment plan that fits your needs, your goals, your risk tolerance. Where possible, if you can structure the portfolio along those dimensions of the higher expected returns, those drivers of returns, that's great. But most importantly, again, embrace the kind of the market pricing. You want to diversify globally. So you don't want to be over-concentrated in any one area. You don't want to try to time the markets, right? These are things that you can't control when markets are going to go up and down. So you also don't want to try to guess that. You can manage your expenses. 
So there's different types of expenses with investing, actively managed mutual funds, those mutual funds that we talked about that are typically underperforming on average. Uh, they also usually have higher fees. So index funds, things that are tracking the index generally have lower fees. Funds, or if you're doing this on your own, buying and selling a lot of stocks, that creates additional expenses, right? There's transaction fees. So we don't want to be buying and selling more than is necessary. We're only really needing to change up the portfolio if something's changing with your situation, right? So if your goals haven't changed, if you set up a proper plan, other than regular rebalancing, where you're trying to just keep the portfolio the way you want it to look, there really shouldn't be a lot of buying and selling. So you should be able to keep the cost down there. And also you want to look at taxes. Anywhere we're triggering taxes unnecessarily, that's going to affect essentially your returns, essentially what ends up in your pocket, right? So that's also important. With all the dips, the ups, the downs, the swings, we just want to make sure that we follow the plan. We stay disciplined through all of that, which I know is easier said than done. So again, for some people, that means maybe talking to an advisor. Although I've talked to a lot of people who, you know, they do do a good job staying disciplined and having that plan. But some people just need that person to talk to, Lindsay. Certainly. Yeah. Just a professional who can put them on the right path, right? Or give them the right blueprint to build. Exactly. I guess if we bring it all together, it all comes back to planning. Don't try to overthink it. Don't try to time the market. Know what your goals are. And if anyone's giving you a specific investment recommendation without actually knowing what you're trying to solve for, then you probably shouldn't take the recommendation because this all actually comes back to your unique situation as well. Mm -hmm. I think it comes down to a lot as well, having patience, being patient and having that good plan again. Absolutely. Maybe the last thing I would say about diversification, just because I hear it all the time about dividend investing, for example, about invest in dividends, take your dividends for your income. It's tax efficient. You don't have to sell any shares. And I'm not trying to bash dividend investing. I'm not saying it can't work, but we're also taking out more risk than is necessary. We're also paying more tax than is necessary. Yes, it's tax efficient. But at the end of the day, if you take a dividend, you don't have a choice but to pay tax on it, specifically in a non-registered account. Whereas if you just take a capital gain and your stock just keeps growing, until you actually need that money, you don't have to sell, you don't have to pay tax. So it's more kind of tax-deferred growth, right? And additionally, Mm -hmm. dividend stocks tend to do well, but that can be explained by those drivers of returns I talked about. Typically, dividend-paying stocks are value stocks, which I mentioned as one of the drivers of higher expected returns. And they're also typically profitable companies because that's why they're able to pay out a dividend. So again, profitable companies generally do better than less profitable companies. But if we just kind of focus our whole portfolio to a handful of dividend-paying companies, there's a lot of other profitable value stocks on the market that don't pay dividends that we're not getting exposure to. So we're missing out on those expected returns. And we're missing out on that opportunity to diversify our risk among additional companies. And also, we're paying tax that we don't necessarily need pay if we don't need that income right now. So that's kind of my last piece and kind of why I wanted to actually do this episode. So I really wanted to focus on the importance of diversification and just letting the markets work for you. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Joe. My pleasure. And the Pursuing a Better Investment Experience, there'll be a link in the show notes for everybody who's interested in taking a deeper dive on it. Sure. Yeah. We'll also include the uh, link to Spiva.com too, for anyone who wants to take a closer look at the performance of actively managed mutual funds around the world. Excellent. All right. Thanks, Lindsay. It's been fun as always. Yeah, thank you. 
Investment services are provided through Matthews & Associates Investments of Aligned Capital Partners Incorporated and approved trade name of Aligned Capital Partners Inc. ACPI. Only investment-related products and services are offered through ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI and covered by the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Tax planning, financial planning, and insurance services are provided through Matthews & Associates. Matthews & Associates is an independent company separate and distinct from ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI. Matthews & Associates are not licensed tax professionals, and you should consult with your tax advisor before acting on any recommendations. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. If you'd like to see how prepared you are for retirement, we've created a free retirement readiness calculator to help you out. Go to matthewsandassociates.ca forward slash ready to input your retirement information and receive instant feedback to help you evaluate your current retirement readiness. Be sure to tune back in for the next episode. And until then, we're here to help you simplify and succeed in your retirement planning.